Well, I invite you this morning to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2 and verse 9. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 9, as we consider the end of uh, this Christ hymn that we began to consider last Sunday, um, we considered and thought about the humiliation of Christ that he would take upon himself in order to rescue us from our sin and the wrath of a holy God. And, and now this morning is great joy and delight to consider his exaltation by our great and holy God. So Philippians chapter 2 and verse 9. Hear now the word of God. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And now, Father, we thank you for your word that you have given to us this morning to consider. And we especially rejoice and thank you for the exaltation that you have bestowed upon him whom we love, our Lord, that he has been exalted to the highest place and given this name above every name that we might find great joy and delight in Him, in our worship of Him. I pray, Father, that You would open our hearts to receive Your Word this morning, that You would speak to us through Your Holy Spirit who resides within us, that we might know You better and You might change our lives today because we have heard from the one true God. So please come now and speak, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Charles Spurgeon, at the young age of 22 was already preaching to thousands. In fact, this young Baptist preacher would preach in the Surrey Gardens Music Hall in London, which seated 10,000 people. It was 160 years ago on October 19th in 1856, in which the young preacher mounted the pulpit and looked out upon a massive congregation. Every seat was filled. The aisles were packed. The stairways filled with people, and there were still thousands of people outside eager to get in to hear him. After he began and prayed his introductory prayer, but prior to preaching a single word, someone from the congregation shouted, fire. And then someone else shouted, the balconies are falling. And then a third declared, the whole place is collapsing. Immediately there was panic. None of it was true. It was all orchestrated by those jealous of Spurgeon's success, attempting to bring him down, and yet no one knew that. And pandemonium erupted, and people began to begin pushed off the balcony, falling a great distance and, and stamping, uh, stampeding over people on their way out. And when people were, were trying to get out, those on the outside saw this as their opportunity, and they began to stampede in. And when it was all said and done, seven people had died. Twenty-eight people seriously injured. The young preacher was devastated. He withdrew for a couple weeks, unable to preach. And it was when he returned, he addressed his congregation with these words. I almost regret this morning that I have ventured to occupy this pulpit because I feel utterly unable to preach to you for your profit. I had thought that the quiet and repose of the last fortnight had removed the effects of that terrible catastrophe. 
But on coming back to the same spot again, and more especially standing here to address you, I feel somewhat of those same painful emotions which well nigh prostrated me before. The text I have selected is one that has comforted me and in a great measure enabled me to come here today in which the single reflection upon it had such a power of comfort on my depressed spirit. It is this. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things on earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I'm here this morning to encourage you. I don't know what brings you here this morning. I don't know what troubles occupy your heart or what pain resides within your soul today. But I want you to understand, no matter how you come today, the end is fixed. Victory is assured. Christ has been exalted. And though most of the world ignores it, one day, every man and woman and child that has ever lived upon this earth will be forced to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what we shall consider today, a great and glorious truth, perhaps the greatest truth. But in order to fully appreciate this exaltation of Christ, we need to remind ourselves of the contrast that it is to the humiliation in which he suffered in order to save us. We saw last week as we considered this, these steps of descent from self-denial in heaven to service in humanity to sacrifice in death that Christ would dive down and down and down into humiliation in order to rescue you and me from our sin and from God's wrath. And, and it's only after that, that descent of Christ that we now see him exalted. But interestingly enough, there are no steps to his exaltation. It is just immediate. It is a soaring rise into heaven and into honor and into praise. In fact, one preacher said, picture the gears of a catapult being ratcheted down even tighter with the three movements of his self-humiliation so that the final growing click of the gears creates an explosive tension and then the gear is tripped launching into indescribable exaltation that's where christ is today this indescribable exaltation let's consider that today and and what it means for you and for me and for all Humanity. We see, first of all, that he is exalted to the highest place. Note verse 9. The Bible says, Therefore God has highly exalted him. And the first word there is interesting, isn't it? it therefore, it, for this reason, it is referring back to his humiliation. When we read in verse 6, Who, though, or, or I think better translated, because he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, 
God has highly exalted him. It is in response to the obedience of Christ that God will exalt him. The Father will not leave him in his humiliation, but he will act to vindicate his Son. And in doing so, he shows that he approves of the one who has been rejected and despised by man. God has done this. If you remember last week, we we focused on the fact that it was Christ who humbled himself. All the previous action was done by Jesus. He did not count himself, um, um, he did not count God, uh, uh, equality with God a thing to be grasped. He made himself nothing. He took the form of a servant. He humbled himself. He obeyed. And, and now as Christ is exalted, he's not doing any of it. It is the Father who's exalting him. The Father is, is responding to him. He, the Father loves the Son so much. He loves the fact that the Son chose to die for sinners rather than disobey him. That the Father responds with his great delight and approval. In fact, the approval is seen in his resurrection, isn't it? That the Father would not leave him in the grave on that great Sunday morning when Christ appeared in radiance and glory, that death would hold him no longer. The Bible says in Acts 2 that God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. Or, or perhaps we consider the Father's approval of Jesus in his ascension, that he would not be left upon this earth after 40 days of teaching and, and preaching and preparing his disciples. It was God who exalted him. For we see in uh, Luke 24, that lifting his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried into heaven. But the text here, when it speaks of the fact that he has been highly exalted, I don't believe is a reference to his resurrection or even his ascension. It is a reference to his coronation, that Christ would not be left off the throne that he's invited back to resume his reign. In fact, Paul uses a rare word here in verse 9. This highly exalted him. It's found nowhere else in the New Testament. Um, some has translated that God super eminently exalted him. There is, in other words, none higher than Christ. And I don't know if you see what God is doing. He is reversing everything that Jesus did. Jesus, who was obedient to the point of death, was then raised by God the Father. Or Jesus, who left heaven for earth, is then returned from earth to heaven by God the Father. Or Jesus, who made himself nothing, is now seated upon his throne by God the Father. In fact, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 1, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. Or Hebrews 1.8 says, and of the Son, God says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Can you imagine what that day must have been like? When Christ was exalted. I mean, what, what, what it must have been like in heaven? What unrestrained celebration there must have been from the angels there in that place and from all the saints residing there as they saw the Son return to take His throne. What, what jubilation there must have been at His coronation as the Father exalted Him to the highest place. He exalted Him to the highest place. When I read that, the question that, that jumps out to me is, is it a new place? That is, is he exalted to a higher place than he used to be? We, we, of course, affirm that he's exalted to the highest place, but is it a higher place? Is this a greater position than he occupied before? Is there more power? Well, I don't think so. After all, we, we saw he is fully God. He has always been fully God. It's hard to get higher than God. And so... It still nevertheless seems like something unique is happening here, doesn't it? It seems more than simply a reversal of his incarnation, that something wonderful is happening. And I think there is something new. That now as Christ returns to heaven, 
he is exalted as a savior. Up to this point, uh, he had not done the work of redemption. And so when he comes and returns, he is coming back now as the redeemer and he will be eternally praised for that work. Theologians throughout the years have said God does three things. God creates, and God rules, and God redeems. And we, of course, seen God do some of those things up to this point, but it is only when Christ comes that he has truly redeemed us eternally from sin, and now he is worshipped forever as our redeemer. In fact, I think it's even more than the fact that he has taken on the, the work of redemption, the work of a Savior, but it seems somewhat public to me, and we'll see this more as we work through the text, that this high place, this highest place, is a place of public recognition. In fact, up to this point, uh, many would not even know and understand the Trinity or understand the work of the second person of the Trinity. And, and Christ, when coming out of heaven and demonstrating who he is as the Son of God and being exalted into heaven, there is a, a public understanding of who he is now, that now you and I can worship Jesus, the, the second person of the Trinity. God is enlarging the audience of his praise as the exalted Lord. In fact, Jesus prayed as much in, in the high priestly prayer. He said, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me, that they may be where I am, he said. Isn't that interesting? Jesus, right before he died on the cross, prays for us and says, Father, this is what I want. I want those whom you've given me to come and be with me. You know why Jesus wants you to be with him? Well, he goes on and says, to see my glory. He wants you to bask in his radiance, find your delight in his majesty, And his exaltation is in some sense God working and answering that prayer. I appreciate one one pastor said when he preached, the father has weighed up the merits of the son and the proper response to his work on Calvary and nothing will suffice but that he should bring his son out from the invisible glories of heaven and show him publicly to a wondering and worshiping world. We see it, don't we? We understand the glory of Jesus. I hope, I hope you do. Do you see Christ as glorious and exalted? When you bow your head to Him in prayer, do you see Him mighty, reigning in heaven? Too often we picture Christ in His humbled state. He is no longer humbled. Too often we picture Him as we do in our pictures, which I have expressed are, are not well received generally with me. He seems like some, some Galilean hippie with feathered hair in a bathrobe sitting in a meadow. And that's not what he looks like anymore. He's exalted to the highest place. He has been received his throne, and we ought to join in heaven in praising him for it and worshiping for it, exalted above all. But he's not only been exalted to the highest place, he has been given universal power. Read on in verse 9. It says that, that therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name. And so he has received a, a new name. And when in the Bible someone gets a new name, it's, it, it, it's, the name is trying to keep up with their state in life. So Abram will become Abraham and Sarai will become Sarah and Jacob will become Israel. And, and, and my favorite, um, Paul or Saul, which means asked of God, will become Paul, which means insignificant. Or little. 
It's, it's moving to keep up with their understanding of, of who they are. In fact, Jesus in the book of Revelation says to the church in Philadelphia that those who overcome will receive a, a new name and these names are given to them to mark the stages in their life. And evidently the same is true for Jesus. He has received a new name that reflects what he's achieved and acknowledges who he is. He has received a name that is a, above every name. And of course, we're left wondering, well, what's the name? And you see in verse 9, doesn't tell us there, does he? He just says his name has been given to him. But I believe he does tell us if we read on. And we see down in verse 11, and we see every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the name he's given. The name Lord. It's a, a, a title of authority and power. He has power over his enemies. In fact, he came and defeated all of his enemies. When he walked upon this earth, he defeated sin. For the Bible says in 1 John 3, 5, you know that he appeared to take away sins. Or he defeated the devil in 1 John 3, 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. He's even defeated death, 1 Corinthians 15. He must reign until he put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. We even sang it this morning, didn't we? All authority, didn't we say? Every victory is yours. You have power over all your enemies. And so when Jesus died and rose again, the power of sin was broken. The works of the devil was destroyed. The sting of death forever was removed. He has power over his enemies. And so the name above every name is the powerful Lord victorious over all who oppose him. But he not only has power over his enemies as Lord, he has power over you and me. Please understand that Jesus Christ as Lord rules over you. He has the authority to command you and make demands upon your life. It is a name above every name. And so whatever your name is, Sally, Jerry, Stephen, right, as awesome as those names are, right, Lord is better. Right? He has authority. Therefore, Jesus does not exist to enhance your life. He does not exist to give you advice. He does not exist to be a positive and encouraging influence for you. He exists so that you might submit to Him as your Lord. That you might bow your knee to Him and to His authority. This is why He is Lord. He has power over you to rule you and to command you and to make demands of you. The Bible says in Ephesians 1 that God raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but in the age to come. He is Lord. And so when we confess that Jesus is Lord, please understand, we are not simply affirming a set of doctrines. We're not just saying, I believe in this truth that Jesus is Lord. It is a submission to His Lordship. It is a surrender. It is a swearing of allegiance. It is a renunciation of independence. And I'm afraid that many people throughout our day claim the name of Christ. And you would ask them and say, are you a Christian? They would say, yes, I'm a Christian. I, I believe that Jesus Christ died and risen. And I believe that Jesus is Lord. But there is no evidence in their life that he actually rules over them. 
I wonder, perhaps there's even someone here who would affirm all the truths that I would teach you. And, and yet, is Christ actually reigning in your life? Is He actually ruling? Is He actually serving as your Lord? I think you'd do well to ask yourself that question even now. And if you would say, yes, I, He is my Lord, well, what evidence in your life is there towards that end? What, what, what do you see in your life that shows that you are actually submitting to Him and, and following Him? Perhaps there are some here that have never truly said, Christ, I surrender. I lay down my rebellion. I surrender. I bow my knee to you. I invite you to do so today, brothers, friends, that you might make Christ your Lord and receive the salvation He would offer you. He is Lord. He has authority. In fact, this word Lord here found in verse 11 is more, by the way, than just the title in which He has received. Um, As you know, that the Hebrews, when they were introduced to God there, when Moses was introduced to the God of his ancestors, and and he said, okay, well, I'm going back to Israel, and I'm going to tell tell them that that God has spoken to me, but who should I say is, is sending me? And God says, tell them that Yahweh sent you. Tell them that Jehovah sent you. And soon the Hebrews would have a tradition that they would not mention the name of Yahweh. It would be disrespectful to actually use God's name. And so rather than using the name Yahweh, they would use the, na- the word Lord. And we even keep that tradition in our, in our Bibles today. Every time the Old Testament is translated, the word Yahweh is translated, you don't have Yahweh in your Old Testament. You have the word Lord. And we understand that Paul, certainly this Pharisee, would understand to call Jesus Lord is, le- is nothing less than the name of God. He is calling Him God. This is why it's the highest name. It's God's name. It's announce- an announcement that Jesus is none other than God. Of all the names that Jesus has been given, this is the greatest name. In fact, you, you think about all the names and the titles in which we see in Scripture of Jesus. He is called, as you know, the Wonderful Counselor and the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father and the Prince of Peace. He is the first and last, the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega, the Ancient of Days. He is the door to the sheep, the chief shepherd, the good shepherd, the bishop of our souls, the Lamb of God. He is the light of the world, the light of life, the tree of life, the word of life, the bread of life, the living bread, the living stone. He is the rock, the chief cornerstone, the stone of stumbling, the sure foundation. He is the bright and morning star, the day spring, the branch, the vine, the door, the fountain, the lily of the valley, the rose of Sharon, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the son of righteousness. He is the bridegroom, the wisdom of God, the man of sorrows, the arm of the Lord, the author and finisher of our faith, the captain of salvation, the horn of salvation, the head of the church, the heir of all things. He is the word, the resurrection. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the beloved. He is the one who's altogether lovely. He is the firstborn from among the dead, the holy one of God. He is the mediator, the teacher, the advocate, the counselor, the creator, the deliverer, the judge, the leader, the ransom, the redeemer, the servant. He is the prophet, priest, and king. He is the king of glory, the king of Israel, the king of peace, the king of righteousness, the king of Jews, the king of Zion, the king of kings. He is the second Adam, Abraham's seed, the root of Jesse, the son of Jesse, the son of David, the son of man, the son of God. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He is God our Savior, the only one wise God, the one who is and was and is to come. He is the Almighty. He is Jesus. He is the Christ. And above all those titles, there's one that reigns. Jesus Christ is Lord. You say that with me? Jesus Christ is Lord. That's who He is. He has received the highest title. He is God Himself. I know that some people, and you've heard people talk like this, they, have, they understand their salvation. They say, well, this, there was a time in which 
I made Jesus Christ Lord over my life. And I think we probably understand what they're saying. I want to slightly correct that. You have never made Jesus Christ Lord over your life. God has. God exalted Him. God gave Him that name. You may have recognized that He already is Lord of your life. You may have laid down your arms of rebellion and submitted to your Lordship, but He is not up in heaven waiting for you to make Him Lord. God took care of that long ago. He is Lord today and Lord forever, and one day everyone will recognize it. It is just a matter of time as we move from what God did for Christ in the past and now consider what God will do for Christ in the future. You see that he will receive universal praise. Note verse 10. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. So every knee will bow before him. When you, when you bow, you are recognizing someone's authority. It's a submission. It's reverence. I wonder when's the last time you bowed before someone? When's the last time you got down on your knees before someone? It, it may have been men when you were proposing to your, to your girlfriend at the time. Right? And that was more of a begging, I think, than it was a <laughs> submission, right? Some kind of pleading, please say yes. That's not the kind of bowing we're talking about here. Bowing in awe. Bowing because you are overwhelmed that the one before you is infinitely greater than you. When's the last time you bowed like that? Well, probably never. We're Americans after all. Right? We don't bow to anyone. We don't bow, we don't bow to our presidents or leaders. Right? One man, one vote. Right? We're all the same. Well, I'll tell you, there's coming a day in which you will bow. You may want to practice. Because there's coming a day in which your knee will hit the ground before this Lord. In fact, not every, only your knee, but every knee. You notice he says, every knee in heaven and every knee on earth and every knee under the earth. And I thought about doing a theological survey of what, who owns these knees. But let's just say it's pretty much all the knees. Right? That's pretty much that's it. That all the knees. Every knee in heaven and, and on earth and under the earth will bow before him. Every single person on this planet, every single person ever to live, great and small, dead or alive, every holy angel will bow, every fallen angel will bow, every demon will bow, Satan himself will fall on his face before Christ. Maybe he will be front and center on that day so we could all watch that ultimate defeat. And not only will every knee bow before him, but you see that every tongue will confess him, as we see in verse 11, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, just Kind of what we did a moment ago. This, I think, is the grand climax of our redemption. It will be a glorious day, unimaginable in its delight. This is the final answer to the humiliation of Jesus, that everyone will declare that He is Lord. This is His vindication, this public recognition of who He is. And that confession, I trust, will be a deafening crescendo. I I believe that, that when every knee bows and every tongue confesses, it will be a thunder of confession. In fact, I think we actually see a picture of it. 
in Revelation chapter 19, when the Bible says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude. And so John, who lives 2,000 years ago, tries to think of the loudest thing he could actually think of. He doesn't have jet airplanes and rock concerts and whatever we might think of. And so he says, like the roar of many waters. It was like Niagara Falls, he said. And like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. Next time the thunderstorm comes in you and you feel it shake your body when it snaps and thunders, think that's what it will be like on this day, crying out, hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. They all will say it. Everyone will say it. They all will declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. And for me, and I hope for you, it will be a day of unimaginable delight. We have no idea how delightful and wonderful it will be. And yet for countless others, it will be a day of utter terror and bitterness and sadness. You see, all will acknowledge Him. All will confess Him. All will bow. But not everyone will be saved. The Muslims one day will see that they were wrong. And they will fall before Jesus Christ and confess that He is Lord. Hindus will and Buddhists will and Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses who deny this truth will and the atheists who deny that God exists will one day realize they were wrong to their eternal shame that Jesus Christ is Lord. Everyone, Pilate will fall, Caiaphas, Herod, Nero, Napoleon, Mao, Hitler, Stalin, Nietzsche, um, they all will fall. Dawkins, they all will hit their knees before Christ and be forced to admit that He is Lord. Everyone in this room Every single one of us will bow before Him. We all will confess, but for some it will be to their eternal shame. And so that's why I invite you here this morning. Perhaps you're here and you're not a Christian. We are so happy that you're here with us. You are welcome anytime. We, we welcome your questions and your doubts even. We want, I'll be happy to, to go out and have a cup of coffee or breakfast with you and what's going on in your heart. You're welcome here. But I say in great love in my heart, and it's not because I thought it up, but because my authority tells me there's a day, non-Christian, when you will bow before Christ. And if you do not bow in this life, you will bow in the next. And that time it will be too late. It will be too late. You will stand before a holy God there in your sin. I will stand before a holy God. In fact, I will fall before a holy God. And, not, and, and I, will, I will have sin just like you do, but I will be covered by the righteousness of Christ. And so I will be accepted, not because I'm better than you. I'm probably worse, but because I have Christ's righteousness upon me. Because I vowed to Him. I beg you this morning, eternity is too long to gamble. Too long to put this off. Will you not bow your knee today? that you might bow then in great and utter joy. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, what we just did, He's my Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. This is a confession we'll all make. But it's not simply a confession. I think it's, for us, it will be praise. It will be worship. He deserves praise. You do realize that. 
The psalmist says in Psalm 95 and verse 3, The Lord is a great God, the King above all gods. In His hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are also His. The sea is His, for He made it. And His hands form the dry land. In other words, God owns everything. He owns the mountains and the world and the seas and the kingdom. He, uh, he alone is God. How then should we respond to the exaltation of the Lord? Oh, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. The psalmist says in Psalm 103, The Lord has established His throne in heaven and His kingdom rules over all. Praise the Lord, you angels, you mighty ones who do His word. Praise the Lord, all His hosts. The angels need to worship Him as well. In Isaiah 45, God said, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. And what Paul's doing, he's just taking Isaiah 45 and taking out the word God and entering the word Jesus. Jesus will receive that praise from everyone. He's Lord of the heavens. He's Lord over the nations. He's Lord over all the heavenly beings. He's Lord over everything. Therefore, He is worthy of your praise. He is worthy of the praise of angels, the praise of nations, the praise of kings and rulers, of old men and little boys and women and servants and CEOs and every tongue and tribe. Praise Him, all the earth. This is what He wants. He wants your worship. In fact, you look at the ver verse 10. How does it begin? Notice what it says. So that. So that. Why has God exalted Christ to the highest place? Why has He given Him a name that is above every name? So that you might worship Him. That you might praise Him. He has given this name Lord, not simply as a title, but a signal for your knee to start bowing and your tongue to start shouting and your heart to start rejoicing in who He is. Savior, we said, worthy of honor and glory, worthy of all our praise. We just sang that. Is that your heart? Is He worthy of all your praise? I trust He will be one day. We see it in scene after scene in heaven. Revelation 5, for instance, says, Then I look and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne with a loud voice. They were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Amen. He has saved you. Not simply that you might be forgiven. Not simply so your life may go easy. Not simply even that you might live forever in heaven. He has saved you that you might worship Him. He is not simply interested in making Christians. He wants to make worshipers. That's why He came. That's why He came to rescue you. That was His mission, that He might make you a worshiper. We all worship something. We are all by nature worshipers. We all find great delight in placing our heart's affection on something outside of us, exalting something, lifting it up. This is why some of us grown men have a ridiculous habit of being emotionally tied to what a 19-year-old kid can do with a ball. Right? 
And it can either fill us with great joy and delight that we will even jump out of our chairs with arms stretched high and shout at the top of our lungs, or it will ruin us for a week. What a kid does with a ball. Because you were designed to worship. You were designed to place your affection in something other than yourself. And by the way, it's just not us men who do this, right? This is why we have all these celebrity culture. This is why every night when I watch the nightly news, for some reason he thinks I care about what actor just happened to die. I mean, not to say I don't care about people dying, I certainly do, but why are we talking about an actor and not a doctor or a teacher or someone who spends their life serving someone? Right? Because we love celebrities. Why well, we have People Magazine and ridiculous things like that. And we want to know what clothes they're wearing and what diet they're on and who they're marrying and who they're not marrying and, and, and how they do their hair. And we want to know everything about them because we're designed to worship something. And when we miss God, we replace it with pathetic and goofy idols. Like teenage girls and teenage boys throwing balls to each other. You're designed to worship God. He is worthy of all our praise. All of it. And God is trying to make it easy on you because he has exalted Jesus so that you might see him. He has given a name above every name. This is why 2014 Hamilton Baptist Church is moving out to reach our neighbors in the nations, why we are sacrificing and praying and strategizing how we can from this day forward be a people about reaching others Because he is worthy of worship. It's not simply because we love our neighbors, though we do. It's not simply because we love the nations, though we do. We primarily want to go because we love Jesus. And there are millions upon millions of people praying to their ancestors and following Buddha's rules and, and hoping to be reincarnated or praying five times a day to a false god or deny the god at all. There is a god. His name is Jesus. And he is worthy of the praise of every man, woman, and child that has ever lived upon this earth and Paul looks forward to the day in which he will receive it it's coming it's always coming write it down it is coming the day is fixed in fact this is why we gather on Sunday mornings isn't it isn't this like a dress rehearsal right are we practicing today for this great day we might gather in awe and joy together because Jesus everything to us who may come and consider Jesus' majesty and mercy so that our hearts are bowed in awe and at the same time they're lifted in hope? Is this not why God's word searches us? That we, and, and, and draws us? That we might be led into repentance and love? Is this not why we come that our knees might, might bend in humble wonder of this God who loves us and is gracious to us and our joys, our tongues joyfully confess that Jesus Christ is Lord? Isn't, don't we hope that those who would come into this room on Sunday mornings who may not share our convictions would look at us and say, I don't know what they believe, but as the Bible said, Surely God is in this place. And we want to worship like that, where they may not affirm what you and I believe about Jesus, but they will look and say, something's going on here. Someone is doing something here. He's worthy of this. And what Paul is doing, remember the context of what's going on, and Mark shared with it a, a little bit. You know what Paul is doing? He is, these people, this church is... They're, they're threatening to rip themselves apart. They're, 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 they're looking after their own interests. And I don't care about this person. I want my glory. And they're not thinking about each other. I want my preferences and my rights. And this is what they're who are holding on to. And they're going to rip the church apart. And what Paul's doing is, is taking their eyes off themselves and says, look at Jesus. 
Look at Jesus. And the more you gaze upon Jesus, the more you will care about your preferences because you have Jesus. The more you understand that he is exalted, you will seek after Jesus. Do not long for that day in which he comes in that transcendent glory. And all the might and majesty of all our teen idols and power of rulers and empires will simply fade away like the morning mist before the righteous son of glory. He said to us, I am coming soon. The church responded in Revelation 22. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. He's coming. Well, we must end and quickly. Last point is that he will complete the ultimate purpose. The end of verse 11, all this will happen to the glory of God the Father. That is every knee, every creature's knee, and every tongue will respond to God's exaltation of Jesus. And the result will be nothing less than the glory of God the Father. Now here's the question. Why does our worship of Jesus exalt Jesus' Father? How is it that when I bow my knee to Jesus and I look at Jesus and I confess you are Lord, glorify the Father. I thought about it. I was thinking about that. I spent a lot of time thinking about this this week. Thank you for paying me to actually get to do that. It's just a great joy I have in my heart. So how, how does this work? How does, how does worshiping Jesus glorify the Father? And I remember, well, all of what Jesus is doing is the Father's plan, isn't it? Right? He, I mean, he's going to this world to redeem us because the Father sent him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And then that Jesus, even verse 8, remember it said that he humbled himself by becoming obedient? Obedient to, to whom? It's to the Father. And in fact, obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And so what Jesus did, if I, if I could paraphrase Philippians 3, is that he considered everything a loss compared to the surpassing worth of obeying his Father. Right In his sacrificial obedience, he showed how much he valued the Father. He loved the Father. And I, I want to let you know, Christian, that Jesus came and died upon a cross. Yes, because he loved you, but I think even more so because he loved his Father. He came and said, okay, Father, I will do it. I will obey you even if I have to die this death because I love you. And therefore, even in, in our salvation as we worship Jesus, what he's doing, he's saying, well, I just did it because the Father told me. Do you understand? It's his plan. I guess I obeyed, but he, he is his plan, and I want, I want to obey him. In fact, Jesus wants the Father's glory. In the high priestly prayer, before his crucifixion, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. Why? Why does Jesus want glory? That the Son may glorify you. Right? Exalt me so that I might exalt you. Or John 12, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it is for this very reason I have come. Father, glorify your name. Jesus wants to glorify the Father. But evidently from this text, the Father wants to glorify Jesus because he's exalting Jesus. He's giving Jesus the name above every name. I think for eternity, the Father's going to point to Jesus and say, that's my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. I think you're going to hear that over and over and over again. They love to glorify each other. In other words, there's like a competition that who can glorify each other. The Father will not look out for his own interests. He will look out for the interests of his Son. And the Son will do nothing from rivalry or conceit or selfish ambition, but delights in his exaltation because it brings honor to the Father. They love to glorify each other. Now think about this. Let me apply this. What does this mean for me today? That Jesus and the Father love to glorify each other. 
Well, God has left a witness upon this earth. And it is not simply the solitary Christian. Though you are Christian witness, it is the church. And the church is to experience and display what God is like. We are to show the world what the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are like by how we want to exalt and serve and defer to one another. No, I want your preferences. No, I want your preferences. No, I want to serve you. No, I want to serve you. And we are to show the world what God is like. Right? Jesus prayed there that high priestly prayer. Father, I pray that they may be one. Well, what does that look like? Just as you, Father, are me and I in you, that they may also be one. I want them to be one like you and I, Father, are one. Our unity is to resemble the Trinity and how they are exalting one another. And one day, by the way, when you step foot into heaven, or perhaps when He comes first and He recreates this earth and you take that first step in perfection, you will know on that day truly what it is to love your neighbor as yourself. When all of your self-focus has been dislodged, all that inborn self-focus is gone forever and you will find your great delight in serving one another as Christ does today. He'll make us like that. I don't want to wait though. I don't want to wait till that day. I want to grow in this church. I want Hamilton Baptist Church to grow as we serve one another, to live in a united community in humble service. Christ said, whoever humbles himself will be exalted. You know that? Just as, and he lived that, didn't he? He humbled himself and he was exalted. And as we humble ourselves and trust in Christ, we will follow him in that exaltation. One day, we too shall be exalted by the Father into heaven. In fact, the crown that laid a ha- uh, the hand that laid a crown upon Jesus' head will one day lay a crown upon your head. For I know there is laid up for you a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to you on that day. And not only to you, but to all who love His appearing. You therefore, Christian, do not have to fight for your rights. You do not have to fight for your preferences or your significance. You know how the story ends. The end is fixed. Victory is assured. Perhaps we can close with the words of Charles Spurgeon. He said, if, exalt, if Christ was exalted through his degradation, so shalt thou be. Count not thy steps to triumph by thy steps upward, but by those which are seemingly downward. The way to heaven is downhill. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time to consider what you have done in Christ's life. And I pray that you would even now, please, Father, begin to work in our hearts that we would find our delight in Jesus. I'm not saying that we ought not to find our delight in other things, but that we reserve our heart for Christ. And the fact that He is our Lord brings us unimaginable joy and delight. I pray for my friend here this morning who does not know You, Jesus, as Lord. I ask that You would humble them. That they would find their joy in getting off the throne in their life. That they would lay down before You. 
and say, I'm sorry. I've been rebelling against you, ignoring you, going my own way, doing my own thing. Even though you loved me and want to give me grace and mercy, I don't know why I haven't received it. But today I take it. I take it and never let go. You are my Lord. I trust you. Please, will you put that faith in their heart? Help us as a church. Not just us individually, but as a church, as we thought about this humble service and unity and the example of Christ now for three weeks, help us to grow. Help us to be a church eager to humble ourselves and love one another as Christ has shown us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.